Hello, podcast listeners. This is Jared Pickney, and today's episode is with Judge David Goodson. Judge Goodson has had his name attached to some really big cases over the years, from the West Memphis Three to the murder of Senator Linda Collins to the incredibly bizarre story that involved the murder of Dr. Jones and his wife right here in Paragould. I really enjoyed my time with Judge Goodson, and I think you will as well. With that, here's today's episode. I was just saying, you know, we've had, see, now Sonia on here, who's a district attorney, Judge Phil Hours, Judge Dan Sidham, who we're going to talk about, and now here we are with another judge uh, who happens to be my neighbor, and it's nice to be able to uh, have you guys on the other side. What's it feel like to, to be asked questions rather than be the one asking questions? Uh, it's not bad as long as I'm not under oath. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Uh, I have been under oath and been asked questions as a active judge and maybe as a retired judge. And is that pretty nerve wracking? Well, you know, being in the witness chair as opposed to being the judge is, it is different. (sighs) It's a different perspective on it. It's so intimidating. Do you realize how intimidating that y'all are to the average person, like whenever you walk into the courtroom. Like I, I've been in the court once because of I sped through a school zone in Kentucky in Louisville when I was and I didn't realize I was doing it. And you have to appear before the judge if you speed through a school zone there. I don't know if that's still the the law, but I'm telling you, like I the guy came in and he's like, "All right, everybody," and begins to give the rules of like, "Here's what the rules are in my courtroom," and I thought. I'm going to jail. Like, I'm, there's no way I'm going to get out of here. Like, do you realize that, is that like by design uh, that, or is that more of just kind of on us? That's the way we perceive the judge. That's a good question. And I'm, I'm a pretty large guy. You know, when I put a black robe on. Uh, it's, I, I look somewhat intimidating. Um, I real I've always tried to be a kind of laid back, easy going judge, um, but I, I think part of that is that it's the respect for the position, mm. uh, it's the respect for the office, and you know some judges can be intimidating mm-hmm. uh, for the public who are in the courtroom. There as participants, maybe been as you are, have a traffic ticket. Uh, you know, they're litigants. You know, and I, 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 when I practiced law, there were definitely some judges that I went in front of that uh, scared me. Yeah, uh, I've uh, when I when I was initially I initially got elected uh, in nineteen ninety. And I was only 39 years old. Wow. Uh, that I was elected as a circuit chancery juvenile division judge, which was a new position that had been created by the legislature because the Supreme Court had twice ruled that the way juvenile cases were being heard in Arkansas was unconstitutional. And at that time, they initially, initially uh, juvenile court was under the authority of the county judge and uh anyway that was real the supreme court twice that arkansas supreme court twice real that unconstitutional and the legislature realized they had to do something 
to address the problem, and they created a new judgeship in Arkansas that was called Circuit Chancery Juvenile Division Judge. At that time, the courts of law, which are courts such as criminal court, civil court, where you get a jury trial, um, any case that involved where you had the right to have a jury trial, that was a court of law. And Chancery Court was divorce cases, probate cases, um, those type of cases. And you didn't have, well, there was a couple exceptions there where you could get a jury trial, but they typically didn't get a jury trial. And you had circuit judges and you had Chancery judges. Well, because of the unique character of the juvenile court system, they created those positions so those judges would have authority or jurisdiction in both circuit court and chancery court. Um, and so anyway, I, ha- I had a great campaign manager, my wife. Um, I had I had to run six counties. Mm. Uh, those are Clay, Green, Craighead, Poinsett, Mississippi, and Crittenden, second judicial circuit. Um, I was only 39 years old, but I had been the – uh, juvenile referee under appointed by the Greene County judge for almost nine years, uh, going back to uh, I think April of 1977. And I hadn't even been licensed a whole year as an attorney at that time and started hearing juvenile cases here in Greene County and decided I kind of like that. Mm. And What did you like about it? Uh, working with kids, working with their families, trying to find a solution for whatever problem they might be encounter they might be encountering, or uh, you know, a lot of, sometimes it involved kids that had committed a crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, heard what's called still called dependency neglect cases, uh, where Department of Human Services is involved. Um, also heard paternity cases. I was actually, the legal term back then was I was a referee in bastardy. A referee what? In bastardy? Bastardy. Wow. I've never heard that before. Well, I I had the authority legally to declare someone to be a bastard child. Wow. Uh, anyway. When, I've never met someone with that kind of power. Okay. <laughs> and this was before we had DNA tests, so you didn't have any scientific evidence that really helped you make that decision. I didn't have a whole lot of those cases, thank goodness. Uh, and before I quit doing that, they'd come out with what's called HLA test, uh, human leukocyte antigen, which was precursor to DNA test, and they mm. were some help, but not as specific as a DNA test. Uh, Anyway, I did that for almost nine years. And when when the legislature created these new circuit judgeships to hear juvenile cases uh, on that level, I had the third or fourth most experience hearing juvenile cases in the state of Arkansas of anybody in the state. So even though I was only 39 years old, I thought this is an open space open position we'd been allocated two judgeships uh in the circuit 
Judge Ralph Wilson Jr. of Osceola had been appointed by then Governor Clinton in one of those positions, uh, and uh, he and I were both elected uh, in that position for on a four-year term in 1990. Wow. How long did you serve as circuit judge? 14 years and 10 months. You remember all of what did you use Tim Buzz from what from what year? When did you nineteen uh, January one, nineteen ninety one was my starting date. And then I actually retired on October thirty first of two thousand five. Okay. Uh, after serving fourteen years and ten months. Um I because of laws I had nothing to do with, um uh, I, I had the opportunity to retire as a circuit judge as if I had worked 20 years. Wow. That's and excellent. So, did you, I don't guess, did, we, did you by chance work the um, Jones case? Did you ever see that? I represented one of the defendants that was charged with a, a conspiracy to commit capital felony murder in that case. So, yes, I was. I was involved in that case. Who was charged with the conspiracy? Um, Carolyn Edwards was my client. Okay. Um, I think her husband's name was Don Edwards, and then there was. And they were both proved innocent, or did they get no, charged? They, Don had Don was represented by Philip Wells in Jonesboro. Uh, they tried him first. That was here in Greene County, and he was found guilty and sentenced to ten years in prison. Um, I represented his wife, Carolyn Edwards, and we were getting ready to go to trial. And because of it, it'd take the rest of this program to explain what happened, but things happened where I decided it was in my client's best interest to do an uncontested, a guilty plea. Yeah. Non negotiated. We just went in and pled guilty. And she, was she being accused of, like, if, for those that don't know, and make sure I don't mess this up. So, Dr. Jones, we've talked about this now at least twice in the podcast because it's such a crazy story. It is. But the short of it, and again, you can correct me on this, is Dr. Jones and his wife, who lived, I think, right off of uh, what is Highway 49 yes. here in Paragould, he had hired a hitman, from what I understand, to kill his wife. Somebody shows up at his house with a gun. He thinks that it's supposedly the hitman. So he brings the guy in. He's like, hey, I've already paid you for this, uh, but come on in. We can talk. But this was not the hitman. This was right. another guy who had met Dr. Jones's wife, followed her home. Anyways, ends up killing Dr. Jones, kills his wife whenever she ends up getting home, robs them, and then this guy, the murderer, actually gets busted because I don't know if it's a year later, how much longer later, but somebody comes into, I think it's Higgins Jewelry or some sort of jewelry here yeah. in town to sell jewelry that they had, I guess, got through trading some arrowheads for. They go to, uh, to, to try to pawn off this jewelry, and the jeweler just so happened to recognize that it was Mrs. Jones' jewelry because he'd helped make it for her. So he calls the police. The police come in. They meet with these guys who traded in the jewelry. They were innocent. They had nothing to do with it. They didn't know anything about it, but the guy they got it from was the guy who had actually done the murder. And I think by the time they caught him, he was, well, I don't know if he was way up north right. or where. He wasn't even more close around here. And so uh, it, it's wild. Well, I'll, I'll correct you on that. The, the, the person that the, the 
two guys that had the jury dealt with was actually someone in, I think, either New Mexico or Arizona. And he he wasn't the murderer. Yeah, right. He'd gotten the, I mean, the police did an excellent job of tracing it back. It took them a while to follow it, but yeah, the guys who brought the jewelry here were not the murderers, right? They had traded somebody right. like arrowheads or yeah. something like that for the jewelry, right? They had no idea where it came from. I mean, what are the odds of that? I mean, it's absolutely crazy, and it's you can go back. By the way, you can listen. To, I know Judge Phil Hours talks about it. I think J.D. Stevenson his and his podcast he talks about this, and we talk about it in great detail. Where did uh, Caroline come into that? She was well. She was married to Don, and they were. That's who the doctor had paid $20,000 okay. to, to find a hitman. Oh, okay. Was she uh, just a citizen here in Paragold? Yes. Really? It was, like, how did he know her? Uh, well, his nurse, who was, all, and I can't remember her first name, who was also one of the, there were three defendants in the conspiracy case. And the nurse was, she had turned state's evidence and she was cooperating with a cooperating individual with the sheriff's office. And so she had told my client and her husband that the doctor, and she thought if Mrs. Edward, uh, Mrs. Jones got killed, that he was going to marry her because they were having a relationship. That's my understanding. Uh, and, so anyway, they convinced Don Edwards primarily convinced Doctor Jones that he could find a hitman. Mm. Did they ever actually plan to find a hitman, or they just want to get the money? No, they just wanted they, to get the money. Right. I mean, yeah. it's, it was like well, my client when she did the unconditional guilty plea in court said, "You know, we were scamming the doctor, and if we didn't." get a hitman to kill Mrs. Jones, what was he going to do? Right. He couldn't go to the police and say, hey, I paid them $20,000 to find a hitman to kill my wife. So how is, so what are you, so the charges, you said, uh, what was the charge for uh, against conspiracy her? Conspiracy to commit capital felony murder. Okay. Even though her story was, I wasn't actually going to do it. Right. Well, I mean, you know, the, the the police didn't, at that time, they didn't know who had killed sure. the Jones. Um, there were rumors all over town about, you know, who might have done it. Um, you know, Dr. Jones had been somewhere around the Orlando area, Orlando, Florida area, and... Uh, anyway, Philip Wells came up with an idea that uh, he had been, he was Dr. Jones was a urologist, and he had been treating physician for one of the mafia dons in that area. And uh, it got, it was the most bizarre thing you could ever imagine. What uh, made you decide, oh, go ahead, sorry. What made me decide to come in on that case? Well, no, what I was going to say is what, no, I, that would be a fascinating case. I, what made you decide to talk to Miss Edwards about just basically saying how you need to uh, do no contest here? Like, there, was a, there was a witness that my, my client had talked to some individuals after the murders had occurred and had made 
incriminating statements against herself where she implicated herself uh, you know not in the not in the murders but in saying that the, she would have actually gone through with it well they weren't going to say she had actually gone through it. again they didn't all they had to all all the state had to prove was that there was a meeting of the minds between individuals to find a hitman to okay. kill Mrs. Jones. They didn't even have to prove there had been a murder. Okay. So it's uh, interesting. You know that that really wasn't on the table. But uh, you know when a doctor and his wife get killed, you know, uh, in their and this was right around Christmas. Time, so we're coming up on the anniversary of that in their home. Yes, we that are. was a win around what year? It was the early 90s. Uh, I want to say it was like 89 or Oh, 90. 89 or 90, okay. Yeah. Good luck say I got elected. It, well, it, I think it had to be 88 or 89. Okay. So when you... I, I got to tell you a funny story, though, on that. Yeah. You know, I was at home. I've got three girls. You know, mm-hmm. we were... This I, at one point in time, my wife had given me one of those racetrack things, you know, electric race racetracks, and it was under our bed. And the girls were looking under there, and they found it and got. Can we set this up? Yeah, let's set it up. <laughs> so we were up there playing, you know, race cars. It's about eight thirty nine o'clock at night, and my phone rings. And anyway, Carolyn Edwards says, "Hey, they've re- I'm I'm here at the prosecutor's office in Paragul, and." Uh, I need a lawyer. And I said, what do you need a lawyer for? And she said, well, it's in it's regard to the Jones murders. And I'm like, okay. And, you know, she said, can you come to the prosecutor's office? And I said, yeah, I can, you know, I can be there in about 10 minutes. And I said, in the meantime, you don't talk to them. Mm-hmm. And so it was, this was about nine, 9 p.m. or sometime after nine o'clock. It was, you know, it was not early evening. Anyway, I walk into the back of, uh, Branch Thompson, it was, it was Branch and Thompson at that time, mm-hmm. same place it is now. Mm. Uh, you know, knock on the back door and I go in and it's, it's wall-to-wall law enforcement. You know, they've got state troopers in there. They've got the sheriff. they got deputy sheriffs. they got Paragould police officer. And when I walked in, it was kind of like, you know, it, it, they didn't go, oh, <laughs> but it kind of felt that way, right? Yeah, they—they they were. Why not, were there so many there? Well, it's a big case. Uh, at that they, point, they, at they that point, not, she could have been the. They were not excited to see me because they really felt like my client was the weak, the weakest link in that case, and that she would fess up. Yeah, you know, and other than doing her unconditional guilty plea, she never did. And what do you do in those cases? Do you just, and obviously you've had other cases, I'm sure not quite probably like this, but somewhat similar. Do you just start with listening and just say, okay, like when everyone's out of the room, tell me what happened. Right. Yeah. And then after you hear their story, you're, are you listening to other stories and you're being like, okay, this either matches up or this doesn't match up. And then you're going and talking to other people. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, you got, as a defense attorney, you got to find out. You're entitled to learn who the state might call as a witness. You know, they have to give you the name, address, telephone number, mm. contact information. And, you know, we have the right 
as a defense attorney to contact those people and see if they'll talk to us. They don't have to talk to us, you know, but we can interview them and find out, you know, hey, you've been listed as a witness in this case. What do you know about it? And they'll either say, I'm not talking to you or, mm-hmm. they'll, you know, they'll tell you what they know. So Is that is this the craziest case you've probably ever been a part of? Oh, yes. I mean, no doubt about Somebody it. Somebody needs to write a book about it. Uh, I've thought about it. But <laughs> yeah, we need to get you, because Judge Fieldhour said the same thing. He's like, he's thought about it. And J.D. Stevenson, here's the thing. It's like, I'm so glad we have this podcast so that we can record this stuff. Because I've known about it my whole life because I grew up here and you just no one knew the details except for what we know from what Judge Fillers has shared you've shared and J.D. Stevenson shared it's like we need to pull you all together at some point because I'm telling you like again for those that have not listened to it go listen to Stevenson's podcast go listen to Fillers podcast because we go into detail it's one of the reasons I came on was just to talk about that it's movie quality I mean like you it's stranger than fiction right whenever you really dive into it it really is I mean uh, like it, it had lots of twists and turns on it. Um, you know, I mean, Randy, I was, well, when I, when I stopped being juvenile referee in Greene County, I became the public defender because the quorum court had decided that they wanted to, uh, create a public defender program to try to cut down on the cost that they were, the amount of money they were paying on an annual basis or court-appointed attorneys to represent people in court who were indigent and filed to appoint an attorney. And so um, that job paid better than juvenile referee. And I had already seen the winds of change blowing, and I could I, I sensed that at some point in time the constitutionality of the juvenile referee system in Arkansas was going to get challenged in court more than likely get declared unconstitutional as it was. And so I said, I'm a, I applied to be the public defender in Greene County, and I was hired. Did you and ever serve as a prosecutor? Not well. I special. I, I, I prosecuted a couple of cases by assignment, but no, I, I was more defense. I was always defense. And tell me about this. You said you became circuit court judge in 91? Right, January 1, 1991 is my first, well, I, I, that's when I started. What What did you like about serving as a judge? What was What did you like about it, and what was difficult about it? Uh, well, I, I got to be the decision maker. <laughs> was probably the best part. And tell me, let's go, stop there for a second, and tell me how that put me, because 99.9% of people who listen to this have no idea what it's like to be a judge, nor will they ever know what it's like to be a judge. Can you put us in your mindset for a second? So a case comes. What what was your what was one of your more difficult cases as a judge? Let me just start there first. Use as an example. Uh, I had some really bizarre or unusual juvenile division cases that had unique fact patterns, and uh, you know there wasn't at that point in time there was not a whole lot of case law in Arkansas on juvenile court cases, so we were kind of feeling our way through it, I'll say. Uh, we didn't have a lot of we didn't have a lot of guidance, you know, for, for by cases that had been appealed and decided by either court of appeals or Supreme Court. Um, so that made it difficult. So you have one of these juvenile cases, one of your more difficult ones challenging like 
or I guess you could just go with even one of your more basic ones. Like, what's the thought process? So, like, what makes for a good judge? Like, you're coming in and you're basically your job is to do what if you're going to do your job well? Well, I think the first thing you you you've got to have respect for the participants, uh, and you know, start with the attorneys because that's who you're going to deal with on a more regular basis, but also respect the litigants, you know, regardless of what their status in life might be, you know, um, and try to treat everyone with respect, um, try to treat everyone with courtesy. um, Are you talking to the attorneys before the case even starts, like before the trial even starts? Depends on what kind, I mean, it kind of depends on the nature of the case. Uh, you know, a lot of times the juvenile court, we just had we had our juvenile officer set the docket, and typically we didn't discuss uh, the case with anybody before it came up. And you're just calling them up. And, you know, uh, when, when I first started as Circuit Chancery Juvenile Division Judge, we had the juvenile delinquency, which were you know kids under the age of eighteen who were accused of committing a crime um we had dependency neglect case which was children who had been abused or you know abandoned or neglected by their parents and then we had uh they were called fins family in need of services cases and those could be just about anything a lot of times it involved uh, children who were having behavioral problems in school uh, attendance problems in school. Uh, parents might have drug problems. Uh, you know, it was a family in need of services, and then we would try to, you know, plug them into uh, services that were available on a local basis. Uh, you know, whatever, whatever it might need. So the goal was try to keep the child in the home. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you didn't have a jury, and uh, you're the one making decisions, right, as far right. as what right. happens, is that more of a um, – are, are the decisions you're making on, okay, this person gets community service or this person gets – they're going to go to whatever. They're, you know, I'm not going to do anything. Is that more of kind of like, a, for lack of a better word, an, an art or a science? Is it more of kind of like, is it logical or is it more gut, like – is it case by case where you're like you're listening to someone and you're just watching them and you're thinking, you know what, I just have a can't even really explain it, but I just want to I'm going to take it easier on this person, or I'm actually going to, or is it more of like they've been here twice before and here's a formula that I plug in if they've done this plus this, it's always going to equal that no matter what. Does that make sense? What I'm asking, I guess, like my question is like, how do you arrive at some of those decisions that you make on what you decided to do? with that person based off of whatever they had done or not done? Um, well, you, you've got to look at the overall picture. You know, how, uh, if it's a, a delinquency case, what type of offense are they charged with? Now, in, in a delinquency case, the, it, the juvenile has the protection of, same protection we have in, as adults in criminal court, the state has to prove that they're guilty of the offense or offenses they've been charged with beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, beyond a reasonable doubt is the highest 
level of proof in court. Um, it's kind of hard to descri- describe. Usually, we use our hands when we were talking to a jury. Uh, preponderance of the ev- the lower than that is preponderance of the evidence, which means if you had a set of scales and you tipped them ever so slightly on one side, then that's preponderance of the evidence. With that same set set of scales, if you're talking about beyond a reasonable doubt, it's got to tip something more like, you know, 70, 30, 75, 25, you know, uh, maybe even higher than that. Mm. Uh, so, you know, preponderance is, is, is the least burden of proof. Uh, but anyway, in delinquency cases, you know, again, the state, if it's a contested case, but I mean, a lot of times in juvenile court, it'd just be plea, you know. Gotcha. I, I'm, I, I committed the offense. I'm guilty. Uh, you know, uh, one of the, I guess, reoccurring thoughts I had as a juvenile division judge was I was raised by two school teachers, so I've. I wasn't a bad child. Are you from here, by the way? I grew up in Black Oak, Arkansas. Oh. The Black Oak, Arkansas. That's, uh, there's a band lived, named after I that. I lived right across the street with a pastor from, with, from Jim Daniel Mangrum. No. I did. I used Come to. on. You know anything about Black Oak, Arkansas, Chris? I mean, I know about the town, the community, Black Oak, Arkansas. You don't know about the band? But I know the band, yeah. but I don't know their music. Uh, y'all listen. Jim Dandy, man. Yeah. When, when Electricity Came to Arkansas is an album. Who did you say? That it, what was your connection with the band members? Did you know? Jim Danny lived, I mean, there was a street, and there was what I call a gentleman's pastor, in-town pastor, where he had cattle, a couple of cattle on. Uh, and Jim, at that time, lived in a house that was on a gin yard. And uh, anyway, I, he first started off on drums, and I could hear him playing the drums, and <laughs> They first, I think they started out as nobody else, and they may have been another name, but usually they'd practice on Sunday afternoons, and there was a dump pit for the grain elevator, and uh, they would practice. It had free electricity, and it was covered, so they would practice there. And I'd hear them, and I was like, they're never going to amount to anything. (laughs) (laughs) Man, they did. They Uh, made it. Right, they did. Um, I wonder if the Jim Dandy at Dairy Queen was named after him. It is. Is it really? Yeah. Mike, Mike Grogan will confirm that. That's crazy. You know, Mike Grogan, yeah. ask, at, he'll confirm that. It is named after Jim Dandy. Man. And they, they, I know they first started out and they were nobody else. But I've been to dances at the uh, American Legion Hut in Monette where they played. Uh, Any of those guys still around here? Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, Jim. I, I'm not sure where Jim lives these days. Uh, you know, I I, the last time I saw Jim that I remember, it was Mother's Day, and we were both at church at the Black Oak Baptist Church, <laughs> and his younger sister was a year ahead of me in high school, and they got up and sang uh, a special at church of how great they are. When was that? Oh, uh, it's been probably oh maybe eighteen years ago. Okay, quite some time. Yeah. Anyway, and Jim, 
was suffering from vertigo at the time. He had a black patch over one eye. He had on a black leather fringe jacket and uh, you know, very tight white spandex pants. <laughs> That's and I can give you a little. It's like, I want to see you in that same outfit. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> look up, look up, Jim uh, Dandy, Black Oak, Arkansas. It was a number one hit, wasn't it? Um, I don't know. Yeah, I want to get the. But yeah, people. But yeah, you can absolutely listen to it on Spotify or Apple or I mean, it's all over. My dad's my dad's favorites. Okay, but the show the world is a small place. Yeah. Um, John Grisham also attended the Black Oak Baptist Church until he was about five or six years old. Hmm. Seriously. Yeah, and he still. Did got you ever run into him? Yeah. I, well, he had a sister that was like a year my age or a year younger than me, and I was. A lot more interested in her than I was him. <laughs> <laughs> so think about this. Uh, you have Jim Dandy. Yeah. John Grissom. Yeah. David Goodson. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you put me third. <laughs> <laughs> there needs to be a sign or something. People need to know. Well, what is it about Black Oak, man? They have produced all these uh, incredible people. We were, we were artsy people. Are you an artsy person? Uh, no. Oh, <laughs> that's, oh that's we, you know, we had some artistes there. I, I got to tell you, now that we brought up John Grisham, I'll tell you my funny John Grisham story. Uh, his first book, which was A Time to Kill, you know, not, he wasn't getting much following mm-hmm. that. Uh, Mary Gay Shipley, who owned that bookstore in Bible in Bible, invited him to come there and have a book signing. And, you know, then he got discovered and he kind of took off. And for years, anytime he'd come out with a new book, being grateful to her, he would schedule a book signing there in that bookstore at Bible. And so I'd seen that he was coming, had a new book coming out. And, you know, I had started collecting signed Christian books through that bookstore. And it just so happened the book signing was going to be a day I was scheduled to be in court in Blyville. So, you know, I called them up and asked. You had to ask for a number, and, you know, I asked them for a high number, and they go, well, that's strange that everybody else is asking for a low number. Why do you want a high number? I said, well, I, you know, it don't, I think the book saying only went to 5 o'clock, and I said, I'm going to be working, and I'm not sure I can get there mm-hmm. by 5, but, you know, I need it. I need to come close to 5 o'clock. Okay. Well, I show up, and I'd ordered three books that time, and uh, he was in the back of the bookstore at a folding table with chairs and had books, you know, kind of piled up. And so, and I hadn't seen him since we were teenagers. So, you know, I know he wasn't going to know me. And came up, and you, you could tell this by body language that he had had about all that he wanted. <laughs> And so I had my three books, and I plopped them down in front of him. And he said, you want me to sign these, or you want me to write something special? And I said, why don't you write something special? And he goes, okay, what do you want me to write? And I said, why don't you write something like, you sure have come a long way since the last time I saw you misbehaving on the back seat of the Black Oak Baptist Church. <laughs> and he pops his head up and he goes, who are you? <laughs> anyway, we had a good visit, and, you know, uh, that's, that's really neat. This is why I love this podcast and being able to have these kind of conversations because you just never know. Like, you know, this, it's, people are so interesting. What a fascinating experience that you knew both these people, Jim Dandy, 
Sean Grissom right there, just little old Black Oak, Arkansas. Little Black Oak, Arkansas. So I want to talk about this because this year episode, I think, comes out either a week or two after we've uh, already dropped uh, Judge Stidham's. He talks a lot about you in the book um, because you appointed him to represent Jesse Miss Kelly. I did. Tell me how that came about. Uh, well, it it was – my involvement was because – after they had arrested the three, you know, mm-hmm. the three individuals that were charged, um, I was the first circuit judge that was going to be in Crittenden County after that occurred. Uh, what do you mean by that? You're well, gonna... I was I was scheduled to be in court there. I was on my calendar. The court, and I you, I don't know if you ever seen it, but. The second judicial circuit actually publishes a annual court calendar that shows where judges are going to be. Okay, um, you know, as it's got a schedule of where judges are going to be at okay. a certain time. Not not all judges, but on the calendar, if it's a what's called a calendar day, you can look at that calendar and see. Okay, you know, Judge Fellier is going to be here, Judge. You know, Ellington's going to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I was I was going to be in Crittenden County on Monday morning after they had arrested those three young men uh, in West Memphis or Marion or West Memphis, and uh, I didn't even know they had charged anybody. You know, and it was the, when I first found out it was a Friday. I was here in Paragul, which was a calendar day. Um, I was at the uh, old um, city hall police station. You remember it? It's been torn down now. Been torn yeah. down. Yeah, right. it's where the uh, parking lot is for the uh, the uh, post office. Correct. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, anyway, and I had a huge crowd that day, and. The reason, again, because I was a circuit chancery judge, I could sign either a circuit order, a chancery order, or a probate. Or I, I had authority or jurisdiction in every court, circuit court in the state of Arkansas. So the lawyers uh, nicknamed us the super judges. Hmm. Not because we were good <laughs> necessarily, but because, you know, we could – sign any order they didn't have to go find a circuit judge to sign a circuit order they didn't have to go find a chancery judge to sign a chancery or probate order they could come to us and we could accommodate them and again this was my first term you know and i didn't want to have an opponent in four years so Mm -hmm. i was going to serve the public and especially serve the lawyers because you know the general public can't run against us as opponents you've got to have a you you've got to have a law degree yep. and so many years active practice before yeah. you can run for circuit judge in arkansas so you know those were my potential opponents and i wanted to make sure them happy well the uh there had been a there was a controversy regarding the way that child support was being collected by the circuit clerk here in green county and the uh kathy firm uh, or Goodwin Moore, that firm, and the Branch Thompson firm had filed a lawsuit against the three chancery circuits, uh, the three chancery probate judges, 
about the manner in which child support is being collected. And so because of that, those three judges had re- had recused themselves in any cases involving either of those two law firms. And they were the two preeminent biggest law firms in Greene County at that time. So when Judge Wilson and I showed up on a regular day, it was wall-to-wall people. Mm. Um, I was actually, and I don't, I don't know if they were, there was something, there might have been a jury trial going on over at the courthouse, but I was in the municipal courtroom that day, and it wasn't very big, and it was wall-to-wall people. Uh, this was in June. It was hot. I remember that. The air conditioner wasn't working real well. And about 2.30 in the afternoon, my court reporter, Jerry Brown, came up and said, they just called from Crittenden County, and they want to know if you'll do the arraignment on those kids. I think she said kids or juveniles that they've arrested on those murders. And do the what? What you call it? The arraignment? Arraignment. Mm-hmm. That's that's when you advise the defendant what they've been charged with, okay. range of punishment. You did well. You can't ask them for a plea. Typically, you don't even take a plea. It's it's the start of a criminal case. Okay. So anyway, she said they want to know if you'll do that on Monday, and I go, well, yeah, I'm gonna be there. So sure. Mm-hmm. You know, and she said I thought it was they were under you know, the age where they could charge them as an adult. So they were going to be in juvenile court. So anyway, uh, didn't think much more about it. Went home. Sarah, my middle daughter, that mm-hmm. you may know, mm-hmm. she was having a bucking party because it was right around her birthday. <laughs> so I get home after a long day in court and hot and, you know, hearing all these cases and uh my sister, who at that time lived right outside of Washington, D.C., called me, and she said, were you in court in Memphis today, or West Memphis? And I said, no, I don't hold court in West Memphis. I hold court in Marion. And I said, why? And she said, well, I was watching TV, and they showed them taking those three kids to court and said it looked like they were going to, you know, the mob was going to get them. And I said, no, but I'm going to be there on Monday, and I've been told I'm going to do the arraignment. And she said, well, you better have some good security. And that... At that time, I was so new. There were days when I was held, held juvenile court in Crittenden County that I didn't have a bailiff. Yeah. But I decided I wasn't, I wasn't going to panic. So I watched the news that night, and I did see the angry mob. And then I saw Gary Gitchell. Everybody wanted to hang him, right? Like right away? Yeah. 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 Um, anyway, I saw Gary Gitchell, who was the lead detective for Westminster Police Department on TV. And one of the questions they asked him, they said, on a scale to 1 to 10, how strong is the state's case? And he looks right in the camera, and he says, it's an 11. Mm-hmm. Well, as public defender, I had had four or five initial capital felony murder cases, and I don't care how good they were or how well they were investigated. There was no such thing as an 11, and I never even saw a 10. Wow. <laughs> So, you know, I'm going, huh. So, anyway, I decided, At well, that point, are you just like, well, they must have some incredible evidence. I, well, I didn't know, but for a for an investigator to say it's yeah. an 11, it, it, it was astonishing to yeah. me. I'll just say that. Well, anyway, so I, wa- I watched the 10 o'clock news, and so then I decided, well, I better get on this. So I just pick up the phone. I call the jail. 
and Crittenden County, which is in Marion. And I, some deputy answers the phone and, you know, can I help you? And I said, well, this is Circuit Chancery Juvenile Division Judge David Goodson, and I'm going to be there holding court on Monday, and I've been told I'm going to do the arraignment for these three young men that's been arrested on those murder cases, and I need to talk to the sheriff before Monday about courthouse security. And his response is, we're not giving out any information on that case. I said, okay, I'm not asking for any information. I said, let me try this again. I said, I'm Circuit Chancery Juvenile Division Judge David Goodson in Perigil. And I said, I need to talk with the sheriff about courthouse security sometime before Monday. We're not giving, again, we're not giving out any information about that case. And I said, okay, I need your name and your badge number. And he said, why do you want that? And I said, well, I've told you who I am. Mm-hmm. I said, you know, I'm being patient with you, but I said, you know, I'm going to talk to the sheriff one, about courthouse security uh, on Monday one way or the other. And I said, it's either going to be with your help or it's going to be without your help. And I said, and if it's going to be without your help, I'm going to have to tell the sheriff that you were not cooperative mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. me. So I need your name and your badge number. So he gave it to me, and about 30 minutes later, the uh, chief deputy, uh, whose name was Bob Brethrick, called me. And he said, Judge, I'm I'm sorry. He said, that guy didn't know who you were. And I said, Bob, <laughs> that's yeah. pretty evident. <laughs> yeah. Now, of course, again, yeah. I, you know, I, I was I was new. Uh, and he goes, we don't have anything to do with that case. And I said, what do you mean you don't have anything to do with that case? And he said, that's West Memphis. I said, so you're you're telling me I need to call West Memphis about courthouse security on Monday? And he said, well, you know, they're the one handling the case. And Okay. said, you got their number? Yeah. Anyway, so I call there, and I get some police officer. And she said, well, Judson, when you get here on Monday, he said, you just call us and tell you what, tell us what you need, and we'll, we'll get it for you. And I said, well, I think that might be a little bit too late. Yeah, I think so. So, anyway... Went ahead and went to bed. Got up Saturday. I'm still trying to figure out, you know, how to get a hold of the sheriff. So I called Brent Davis, who was the then newly elected prosecuting attorney, and I said, you know, hey, I need to get a hold of somebody there in Crittenden County about courthouse security on Monday. And he says, you want to know how I found out about this case? And I said, okay, yeah. He said, I was eating breakfast, and my dad came in and told me about it. And I said, you're kidding me. He said, no, I'm telling you the truth. So I said, you know, I tried to call John Fogelman, who's deputy prosecutor, and I, I didn't realize that Marion was in a separate phone system than West Memphis. So when I called information for his home number, they said, we don't have a home number. we got an office now. Well, if you call that, you just got the answering machine. And, you know, so anyway, after talking with Brent, eventually John Fogelman called me, and we had uh, – two or three conversations, and I didn't know where, I mean, they had no facility to house a juvenile mm. at that time in Marion or Crittenden County, and I didn't know where they had placed the three individuals. I didn't need to know that. But anyway, John goes, this was late on a Saturday afternoon, he said, um, you know, we want to see it would be okay if we didn't bring them to court on Monday. And I said, uh, that'd be fine with me. I said, you know, 
some of the attorneys that I've thought about appointing or talked with, I said, they've got other obligations. can't be there on Monday anyway, so I don't see any reason to have them there. And uh, so, no, you don't have to bring them. Well, then Sunday afternoon, my wife and daughters had gone to a birthday party. My, again, home phone. I didn't have a cell phone sure. then, I don't think. Rings and somebody saying they're with the Arkansas Gazette, and they had been told that the three defendants weren't going to be in court on Monday. And they want to know if I'd confirm that. And I'm like, dang it, they've already let that cat out of the bag. And, you know, I can't believe that's already out, but okay, if that's the case. I said, yeah, I'll confirm it. And he goes, you'll confirm it? I said, yeah. <laughs> well, then on Monday, on this, well, the Arkansas page of Arkansas Gazette, this was before it was became the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. The uh, headline was, Defendants Will Not Be in Court. That just got people even more fired up, probably, did it? Right. Well, so, anyway, uh, my court reporter drove to court that day, and I told her we needed to leave early. And, uh, anyway, we get to Crittenden County, and we parked in the back of the courthouse, uh, where the judges parked, and uh, when we pull up, there were seven or eight satellite trucks all around the courthouse. And there's this, you know, pack. I, I, I referred to them as a mob, but they weren't mm-hmm. a mob. A pack of uh, TV reporters or, you know, news. It's already getting a lot of publicity at this right. point. Yeah, there's all, well, I mean, you know, three precious children had died, yes. you know. And, yes, it had gotten a lot of national, I mean, especially state attention, but also national attention. But, anyway, we pull up. There's all these satellite trucks. And so, the, and, of course, again, I'm in my first term. Nobody knows who I am. But the reporter from uh, Channel 8 recognized me, and he goes, there he is. And so here comes everybody running with their cameras. And I'm like, what's newsworthy about me arriving at court? <laughs> You, know, you had no idea at that point. There's nothing newsworthy yeah. about me. I, I get paid to do this. Yeah. And so, anyway, Jerry had shut off her car. Well, somebody, and I know it was the, it had to be, there was a three. So it was either Channel 3 or Channel 13, big guy, cameraman. He's got a camera right up against the passenger door or window. And uh, I couldn't open the door. I was going to hit the camera. So I said, Jerry, uh, you need to turn the motor back on or turn the car back on so I can roll the window down. She said, why? And I said, look over here. And she goes, oh, my goodness. And so, anyway, I rolled the window down. I said, uh, sir, that looks like an expensive piece of equipment to me. I said, if I open my door, I'm going to hit it. I said, you mind backing up a little bit so I can get out? Oh, no, no. You know, so he backs up, and I get out. And so they're yelling, you know, uh, we, oh, first thing, one of the first things said, there was an article in today's Arkansas mm-hmm. Gazette saying the defense won't be here. Is that correct? And I said, that's correct. It's the sound of air coming out of the oh, Yeah, yeah, oh. They thought they had something. Yeah. You know, and when's the trial going to be? When's, I said, well, it's too early for that. You know? Anyway, and they're going, well, are you going to allow cameras in the courtroom you know, today? And I said, I don't. I said, look, if you'll let me get in the courthouse, yeah, yeah, <laughs> where I need to be, I said, I'll, I'll let you know whether you're going to be allowed in the courtroom or not. Okay, yeah. So anyway, get in there. And, 
um, I had I remember Val Price was there, and I can't remember the other. Uh, I think Paul Ford may have been there, Robin Wadley. I don't remember exactly how who attorney wise was there. But I go in and we're talking about what's going to happen, and I said. Okay, you know, the press wants to know if we're going to allow cameras in the courtroom. And the lawyer said, What do you think, Judge? And I said, Well, I've read the rule. And at this point, you know, what I think is irrelevant. But my understanding of the rule is that if one of you want to object to cameras being in the courtroom, then I have discretion on whether to allow them in the courtroom or not. And Val goes, I object. And I said, Thank you. Mm-hmm. And I, oh, the other thing, when I got to the door of the courthouse that morning, this young, you know, rather short deputy runs up and said, I'm deputy so-and-so, and I've been assigned to provide you with security. Thank you. I wanted to say, where have you been? <laughs> yeah, thanks <laughs> I, for all the help. I, I knew better than that. So I look at my deputy and I said, go out go out there and tell the press that no cameras will, no cameras will be allowed in the courtroom. So he goes out and I can hear him announcing it. And again, it's like, oh. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that was my brief involvement with the West Memphis Three case. Well, how did you? But when did you appoint Dan? Like, how'd that come out? Uh, he says it was on Monday. Uh, I I thought I'd done it prior to Monday, but if he said it was Monday, and you picked you know, him, I mean, is it one of those things where it's like he said he was so young and inexperienced, and was like, I don't know, maybe he'll do it. I mean, how do you pick someone for that kind of case? Uh, well, you know, you got to look at have they had some trial experience. I mean, he had some trial experience. Um, and at that point in time, all I knew was I knew one of the kids had given a confession or Mm -hmm. what was perceived to be a confession right? and had, you know, implicated, uh, Damien and the other one, Jason Jason. uh, in the case and, um, I mean, based on my past experience with public defender, I felt like that, you know, I didn't know Jesse Miss Kelly from anybody. I didn't, mm-hmm. I think, I believe I had had either Damien or Jason in front of me in juvenile court. In really? County. I, I, I believe I had. Like just before some of those incidents. Mm-hmm. Before yes. that. Right. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I don't know if it was both of them or one of them, but I'm fairly sure I had one of them court uh before me in juvenile court in Crittenden County uh I could be wrong you know I've never looked back on court records to see sure you know we weren't particular we we weren't particularly assigned any case in juvenile court at that time um so we just showed up and you know took whatever was in front of us did you follow the case very closely uh somewhat I mean you know couldn't really not in this area and not follow it. Yeah. So uh, you know, obviously, several of the guys on both sides, right? You knew the some of the defenders and the prosecutors. I know them all. Yeah. I yeah. mean, do you have you ever shared your perspective just from someone on the outside looking in uh, on on whether or not I mean, you think those guys were guilty or innocent? You know, I, one of the things having again I, as a pup, as public defender, I had a number of capital felony murder cases or first degree. I had in first degree, second degree, different, you know, varying degrees of murder cases. The one thing that 
puzzled me or bothered me in the West Memphis case was there was a complete lack of any physical evidence that tied those three individuals into that murder. So how do they get charged? How does that happen? Is uh, that was that rare for someone uh, to to go to prison without any physical evidence? I I I have no I I can't give an answer to that question because okay. I don't have anything to base it on. What about from your own uh, cases? I mean, when people were charged and even some of the own murder trials that you were a part of, was there usually some sort of physical evidence? Yes. Okay. Yeah, there was something that tied them in. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, the, the lack of any physical evidence that connects with any of those three defendants was, um, well, it, it was something I questioned, and it, it was problem, you know, problematic based on my experience as a defense attorney. Yeah. Is um, is that something that as a judge, like if you see something like that happening, like if you were the judge on that case, on that trial, is it your responsibility to point out things like that? Like if you were working that case, would it like do you pull the attorneys aside and say, hey guys, let's talk about this for a second, let's huddle up? Or, or is it your job to stay out of that? No, I have to, the judge has to remain fair and impartial. And okay. You know, we can't be giving guidance to attorneys on how to conduct their case. Yep. Now, you know, parties can file motions, like motion to dismiss for lack of evidence that, you know, the court can rule on. But, now we, we should, judges shouldn't be giving pointers to uh, attorneys or litigants on what they need to file or what they ought to do because the, the responsibility of a judge is to, at all times, appear to be and actually be fair and impartial. Mm. In other words, we don't lean one way or the other. Um, now, our politics mm -hmm. is hot and heavy these days. Mm -hmm. It's gotten a lot more hot and heavy since I've, you know, retired. Um, you know, but judges shouldn't allow their, whatever their political persuasion might be, um, uh, did you say, though, I might have heard you wrong, this is just my own ignorance, did you say that a judge has the power if they don't think there's enough evidence to, how did you phrase that? Like, well, it's a motion, it's a motion to dismiss. You know. Like dismiss the whole trial. Right. Wow. So the judge that was overseeing that obviously felt like there was enough evidence. Uh, I would think so. Yeah. yeah the, well, the presiding judge in that case was uh, Judge David Burnett from Osceola. He'd been prosecuting attorney for years before he became a circuit judge. Gotcha. So I mean, he he had lots of criminal court experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What about um, the Linda Collins murder? Like I saw, I think I told you right before you came on, I was just Googling your name, and um, you were appointed, I guess, by Arkansas Supreme Court um, to be the judge that oversaw that. I was. And... For those that don't know, by the way, Linda Collins, correct me if I'm wrong, she was a senator that's lived state, in Pocahontas, state, state senator, senator yes. and was murdered. She was murdered. Um, how are you – tell me this first off. Like, what's the process of someone picking – like, you were, I guess, officially retired, 
right at that point like right. how did they choose you are they basically doing kind of the same thing with the way you chose dan or it's like they're just looking at your history they're looking at your experience and they're saying this is the guy we want to do it um uh, well at that time it was it's my understanding there were only five retired circuit judges statewide that would preside over a contested uh criminal case in the state of arkansas and i was one of those five and i i don't know this for a fact but i, I believe that they had contacted one or two of those other five and they had turned them down um the the assignment of that is actually done by the chief justice of the arkansas supreme court mm. uh, the chief justice now is john dan kemp he and i were law school classmates mm. so we've known each other since uh august of 1973 mm. goes <laughs> I, back a little ways i uh, kiddingly say you know they let us graduate and we became judges <laughs> <laughs> that uh, that so you were on that Okay, that trouble not for very long. Well, right. Anyway, um, the assignment person with the administrative office of court had, had contacted me and wanted to know if I'd take the case. And, you know, I thought about it, talked with my wife about it. Uh, you know, she had some reservations about me taking it. I guess my vanity came along, and I'm thinking, it's a high-profile case. Uh, I don't know how much longer I'm going to be presiding as a retired judge, so, eh, why not? Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> Give it a shot. So, What's the worst that could happen? Right. Well, anyway, so I, I accepted the appointment, um, you know, and things seemed to be going well up, up to a point, and then I decided that I didn't need to be in that case any further. Well, why is that? Uh the second or third time I actually was physically in court for that case there in Pocahontas, the uh, prosecutor, Henry Boyce, came in to where I was seated. And I, they put me in the jury room in the courthouse when I was there. And he said, I need to you know, discuss something about this case. And I said, okay. I said, we're not going to have any ex parte, which means one-sided communication about this case. So if that's what it is, I said, we're not going any further. And uh, I said, so having said that, I said, if you if it is our ex parte communication, I said, you know, uh, I'm going to report you. And I said, things aren't going to go too well. So having said, having given you that, you know, warning, uh, go ahead if there's something you think I need to know. And, he said, yeah, I think it is. And I said, okay. And he said, well, I said, we think we've got some pretty solid evidence that the defendant's trying to recruit somebody to kill me, kill you, and kill Bill Smith, which was her ex-husband. I go, wow. really? And he said, yeah. And I said, hmm, I may have to get out of this case. And I said, you might have to get out of this case. And he said, well, I've had lots of threat you know death threats said haven't you and i said yeah i have too but i said not in a case like this mm. and you uh, had other death threats before that oh yeah yeah it's crazy uh and so anyway uh i got to thinking I, well anyway i came kind of went back and i thought i'm gonna have to tell my wife about this and she's not gonna, <laughs> she's like not that gonna be too like happy at all uh 
as a retired judge, we get paid half the salary of an active judge. Mm. So, you know, I was basically getting paid around $300 a day. If I And we got paid either for a half a day, which was $150, or a full day, which was $300, you know, to sit as a retired judge. And, uh, you know, there were some other uh, things floating around in Pocahontas at that time that I decided I didn't want to live the rest of my life possibly looking over my shoulder. Mm -hmm. And uh, I decided it was time for me to get out. And so I contacted the assignment person. This was and it, this was like on a Tuesday before Thanksgiving, on Thursday. And I decided I'd, I'd just, you know, I was going to wait until after Thanksgiving. So then I contacted the assignment lady and told her I got to get out and, she said, how come? And I said, well, I try, I'm going to tell you something you can't tell anybody else. And I told her, and she goes, oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's a pretty good reason. Yeah. Right. Well, then she said, I don't know who I'm going to get. You know, I said, I've already been turned down by most everybody else. And I said, well, I've got an idea. And she said, what? And I said, well, John Fogelman is retiring at the end of this month. And I said, he ought to have a clear calendar. And she said, that's a great idea. So anyway, she contacted him. He took it. Mm. Uh, I didn't even ever keep up with that case. I guess the lady that got uh, was accused of being charged, right? She pled guilty. Okay. Hadn't negotiated, but <clears throat> the prosecutor did get out of the case. Gotcha. And they appointed the uh, recently retired prosecutor from uh, Stuttgart, who'd been a longtime prosecutor there, to be the prosecutor. When you look back on your career, um, from your perspective, what what do you what what have you learned about people, or maybe just even life in general? As you look back, uh, you know, we're we're all humans and we're all flawed. Mm -hmm. Is one thing. Um, mm. One of the things I've I, you know I, I've tried to do as a judge is instill in the public that I have respect for them mm -hmm. as the public. Um, but likewise, they should have respect for me as the judge, mm -hmm. uh, you know, making decisions that may affect them or their family or their loved ones. Uh, I mean, sitting as a judge is an awesome responsibility. You know, and I, one of the things that I always thought about and when I was hearing juvenile cases is I'm making a decision that's going to have potentially have an effect on this young person's life for for the rest of their life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, it's uh, kid, you know, a lot of times they make fun of juvenile court. They call it kitty court or juvie court or... Uh, whatever, but I had some of the most challenging factual and law decisions that I faced as a judge in juvenile division court. Mm -hmm. And as I say, it was it it was a it, you know a very uh, humbling experience to have that the authority to make decisions that's going to have a an immediate but long lasting impact sure. on somebody's life that really didn't ask to be there in the first place sure 
Well, you know, that's one of the things whenever Sonia has come on and, and I've spoken with her and there's been others as well. Um, I was, but Sonia comes to my mind, especially talking to her about the, being the district, you know, attorney. I was, um, I, I was just personally really impressed and same thing with you with what seems to be a perspective that I would have never expected from a someone in law, you know, like sometimes you always expect that you kind of someone in your shoes just ready to come in with the hammer, right? And just like throw the book at people. But I love how you tried and, and I, th- I believe you did view every single person who came into that courtroom with respect, no matter, like you said, what they were accused of. And I think that's so important that we do that in every single area of life. Because if you can't respect somebody, you're not going to listen to them. Right. And if you don't listen to them, you can't learn the facts and you can't make a fair decision, a just decision. And so uh, I just want to say, I think that's fantastic. And from what little interaction we've had, whether it's, you know, in front of my house or <laughs> here, I have personally felt respected by you. And so I just want to say, I think that's incredible. And I hope that more people, not just in law, but in every area of life, like I said, that that's something that we can all model and and try to do ourselves. So, um, thank you. For yeah, those kind words. Yeah. Well, why don't we end with some rapid fire questions? Are you ready for them? No. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Here we go. You're on the uh, the witness stand, I guess. So I'm not under oath. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. We need the Bible here or something. You put your hand on. Uh, what's your What's uh, the last movie or the last show you watched or the last book you read? Uh, well, just finished listening to um, Team of Rivals. Yeah. By, uh, uh, Doris. Kearns. Uh, yeah, yeah. I can't remember the third name. Yeah. Yeah. About Abraham Lincoln and uh, his rivals for the Republican nomination for president. Yes. Uh, and he, 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 made, he made all four of them a part of his administration. Yeah, it's a great book. Actually, when I was in seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, I snuck in to the Lincoln Emporium because she was speaking at it. It was an invitation-only deal, and it was like a lot of politicians and all that. (laughs) And I put on the only suit that I had, and I just act like I belong there, and nobody ever questioned me. And so I got to sit in with like, there was like 25, 30 people there. Like I said, the little Lincoln Emporium was really cool and and just got the chance to ask her questions. It's great. Great read. Uh, favorite band other than Black Oak? Um, well, I'm, I'm going to give you three. Awesome. Uh, well, two bands and an individual. Uh, Chicago. Yep. Eagles. Ooh. Um, I can't remember the third one now. <laughs> well, the the Eagles are the number one, I think, favorite among Paragold Podcast guests. What Do you have a favorite Eagles song? Um, or one that you're like, hey, you need to listen to this, and and because uh, I'm not a big Eagles fan. For some reason, I love Lion Eyes. Lion Eyes, okay, that's great. <laughs> that's perfect. Ain't no, ain't no way to hide your lion eyes. Hey, that's a good one, man. I've, I've seen some of those. What about Chicago? What, are, what favorite song? Uh, song you recommend? I, I like. Uh, and it's well, it's the one. It's called Ballet for a, a girl in Buchanan. Where it's like, make me smile and uh, children play in the park. They don't know. I mean, you, you got, it's, 
you have to listen to the album because it's three or four songs that they put together. Okay. All right. I'm uh, gonna check it out. Um what would be your last meal? My last meal. What would it consist of? Uh I, I probably asked for a shrimp dinner from Hoodats and Ball Knob. <laughs> what about the dessert? Uh, gosh, ice cream. <laughs> okay, what kind? Are you going vanilla or are you like a They're, mint chocolate chip uh, guy? Uh, I don't like licorice, but I'll eat anything else. Ice cream, <laughs> you know. Okay. Uh, Shrimp like, dinner like with some ice cream. Chocolate, probably, you know, with maybe some chocolate syrup on top of it. That sounds really good. Maybe throw a little chocolate cake even on top of that or underneath it or, you know. So you're going to be a back-to-back bald knob reference when it comes to last meal. I don't know if you caught this, Chris, but uh, when the walls came on. And so I can't remember which one it was said it, but it referred to bulldogs. What was it? I Short can't remember. K, I think it was something like that. Like a, Brent who said that. Yeah, yeah and said uh, it was a bald knob restaurant. So shout out to bald knob. Um, well, it's about halfway between Pyrgill and Little Rock. So. That's a good place to stop. But it's convenient. Yeah, it's, they're, they aren't, they're only open Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. So It's a good restaurant. Yeah. I've, I've stopped there a couple times. Um, what is on your nightstand right now? Uh, CPAP. <laughs> need that. Uh, I have a book, a uh, guide to arbitration. That sounds like a. I, I need. To, I'll plug myself and say, as a, I, I'm now a certified mediator. I've been certified mediator in Arkansas since 2006. What does that mean exactly? Well, I've I've worked with parties in conflict trying to reach result resolution. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, primarily court cases. Okay. Um, so, um, I enjoy doing that. Yeah, I'm sure you're good at it. Because uh, I, I feel like I'm helpful in showing the parties that they can reach a resolution of their matter or their dispute and usually come out with a better result than they would have had had they gone to court. Yeah. That sounds like fulfilling work. And um, anyway, arbitration is kind of like a mini trial, so to speak. Uh, There are certain rules that uh, are, you know, similar to being in court, but it's it's a lot more informal than being in court. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, you know, arbitrator is usually the decision maker. Uh, mediator is not the decision maker. Mediator is just there to, get, you know, get the parties to talk about, okay, we agree on this or here's the issues and, you know, try to tailor a resolution to their dispute where, you know, they, they feel confident with what they've achieved or what they've agreed with and they've got a better working solution than, Um, if they had gone to court. I did not know that was a thing. Um, If you look, mediators are mentioned in the Bible. Sure. Look at you (laughs) holding a biblical office. Um, Give us a snapshot of an ordinary moment in your life that brings you great joy. Uh, I'll be in with my three grandchildren. They're, They're lots of fun. And, uh, you know, uh, hearing my, well, 
my three daughters all sing. They sound great. Mm-hmm. Uh, oldest granddaughter just made first chair all region. Oh, that's great. First soprano. So uh, the three, my three daughters, they call themselves G3. <laughs> that's great. And then my granddaughter's name is Gray, so she's in there. They're G4. <clears throat> Love it. They get that voice from you? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, last question. What is one thing that you're deeply grateful for right now? Uh, Grace from God. Spoken well from a judge. Thank you so much for making space to be here. I hope I get a chance to talk to you more. Well, let's uh, come over and I need to come over and ring the doorbell and you know. see if you're there. Yeah. Okay. That'd be great. I've got your phone number, so maybe I'll text you before I just show up and <laughs> knock on the door. Make sure you're home before I walk across don't, the street. Don't come too early. Okay. <laughs> or, I will, or if I will. you do, bring coffee. <laughs> That's a good idea. That'd be great. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you uh, taking time to be here. I appreciate the opportunity to do this, and I've really enjoyed it. All right. Judge Goodson has left the building. Um, is that the first time you've had a chance to meet him? Yep, first time. Okay. Um, first time I've had that long of a conversation with him, like I said, as a neighbor. Always enjoyed my time with him, though. Always comes across as very sincere, humble. Um, didn't realize his name was attached to the Dr. Jones murder, which is definitely, I think, one of the craziest stories. As well as uh, the guy from Black Oak. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, John Grisham, right? Yeah, John Grisham. Yeah, man, crazy. It's it's one of the fun things about doing the podcast, right, is uh, I'll talk to people a lot throughout the city that'll just say, hey, enjoying your podcast, And, and my response is always like, yeah, like, isn't it amazing how many incredible people that we truly have living here? And they're always like, yeah, like you see these people at Walmart. And they're like, okay, like, okay, I think I know who they are. But then they come on the podcast and they drop things like that. And you're like, oh, wow, pretty incredible. Yeah. So, um, hey, if you're still listening to this, thanks so much for tuning in. If you've not done so, go check us out on different social media platforms. We're on Facebook and Instagram. And if you will, um, please, whatever platform you're listening to this on, maybe it's Spotify, maybe it's Apple, just real quick take like 10 seconds give us a five star uh, rating that's not about boosting our ego it's really about helping people to uh, find us more quickly and learn about the really amazing people that are living right here in our city so with that thanks so much for listening until next time